Hello and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. I'm Angie Mazzetti and in this episode I'm delighted to welcome Dr Catherine Day, Chairperson of the Citizens' Assembly on Gender Equality. The Citizens' Assembly published its report last June and it calls on the politicians of all parties to speed up the progress towards gender equality in Ireland. Coming up in the podcast, Catherine Day says the people's desire for change is palpable and that they will be holding politicians accountable. What warmed my heart was the degree of humanity and commitment that came out and the degree of commitment to make to get these things changed. A lot of people said um, that, you know, the next time the parties came calling at election time, they would brandish the recommendations at them and say, what have you done? She also says there will be a need to change the constitution by referendum and that this desire for change is from all genders. Because women have not been treated equally. And even in our constitution, women are not treated equally. Um, And so I think in the 21st century, people have had enough and both men and women in the assembly wanted a strong uh, change in this direction. And that's it's only when everybody is valued equally will all of this change. Who does the caring and recognising the importance of caring was a particular area of focus for the assembly and especially the outsourcing of childcare. What struck them most of all was the extent to which the Irish state has contracted out the care to the private sector. And Ireland on childcare is, uh, is in terms of EU and even OECD countries, way out there in terms of the percentage of childcare that is contracted to the private sector. What we have is something that costs a fortune to parents, where those who work in the sector are not well paid, don't have career structures. Um, and so they've called very strongly for a move to, to change that whole system. The Citizens' Assembly also covered the issue of violence against women and gender-based violence. Now, on domestic, sexual and gender-based violence, um, that wasn't actually in the list of things the Oireachtas asked us to look at, but we felt very quickly that we had to, because it's an important part of gender equality. Stay with us to hear more about the recommendations of the Citizens' Assembly on Gender Equality, to learn more about strategies to facilitate more women into leadership and to hear about the rigorous process the Assembly went through to come up with this plain-speaking, ambitious report. So hello, Catherine. Thank you very much for coming into us on the Women in Leadership podcast. You've been heading up the Citizens Assembly on Gender Equality, which reported in June last year, not that long ago. Uh, And you and members of the Assembly managed to listen to and watch the submissions from various sources. What was that like? I mean, it was amazing to be able to produce it despite the severe restrictions of the COVID pandemic. No small achievement. Congratulations. Was it a difficult task? Well, it was full of challenges. Um, first of all, when we started, we had no idea COVID was going to happen. So we had the normal challenges of how do you break down the huge subject of gender equality into bite-sized discussions? Um, how can you present factual information and make a distinction between that and advocacy? Um, and then COVID hit and we had the challenge of moving online. Now, I must say um, I'm full of admiration for our 99 citizens because some of them didn't have any technology technology and had never been on a Zoom call before, but the majority had. And we polled them and we said, we have two options. We don't know how long this is going to last. We can either postpone everything 
or we can go online and try to complete it in a reasonable time frame. And they were very convinced that they wanted to continue. So it was very challenging, but very stimulating at the same time. And I think it made us be even more creative having to do it online than we would have been had we been able to meet in person. How do you mean it made you more creative? Well, one of the biggest innovations was we polled the citizens and they said they only wanted to meet for one day instead of uh, a weekend. And um, we talked to experts in online education and they said you must keep the meetings shorter and the presentations shorter. So we ended up asking all of our presenters to pre-record what they were going to say. And that meant that they were shorter, more concentrated. But most of all, we were able to send them out in advance to the citizens. So they had a bit of time to think about the issues. They were also able to watch the videos more than once, which you can't really do with a live presentation. And then all of the meeting time was devoted to discussion. So I think that worked very well. It also meant we were able to have some um, presenters who don't live in Ireland who maybe wouldn't have travelled here for a weekend, but who were very happy to record a presentation. So in those kind of ways, I think we, we got more out of it. So it was much more considered by the sounds of It was. We had to pull everything forward, which meant the Secretariat and I had to do a lot more of the work up front rather than having it unfold as you go along. Uh, But I think all of that then led to a better quality of debate, perhaps. Certainly a more prepared quality of debate. Um, I was reading through the report and the open letter from the Assembly. It sets out a really wonderful, very simple, uh, clear and ambitious introduction to the set of recommendations that they said they wanted to lead to a new view of future Ireland where gender equality is the norm. Now, it's what we'd all like, but is it achievable? It's a very tall order, isn't it? Um, Given where we're coming from, yes, but I think it has to be the norm. Um, And I think it is, it's a question of political will, Um, not just of the political level, but also whether we, the people, want it. And it was very striking when we asked people, why have you agreed to come to the Citizens' Assembly? Most of them said, I'm doing this for my children, for my grandchildren. I want them to live in a more gender equal society than I have lived in. And I think if we can channel that mood, and that's what we tried to do in the open letter, because the recommendations are rather precise and the citizens wanted that. They didn't want a lot of waffles. They wanted clear messages to the political representatives. So then we felt we needed to find a way to convey the mood of the assembly, which was um, very strongly calling for change and not just change at the margins, but big changes in our system to make it more gender equal. So that's why the letter ended up as it was. And it was discussed a couple of times with the citizens. They commented most of the wording in the end is theirs. Um, And it really, I think, does convey that sense of energy and desire for change and and demand for change, even, I would say. It's very heartfelt just reading it. Mm. And you can feel that plain English is there. So there's no room for. But it is it's straight from the heart from that many people. It's gorgeous. Yes. um, Now, it was a whole voyage together and um, they what was interesting and we had an independent researcher track this was the way people's opinions evolved because some came with strong opinions. Some hadn't ever really thought about the issue in the abstract. Um, But as they they developed a community sense together and a feeling of um, when they got the information and in particular when they heard the personal stories um, of people who were suffering from lack of equality, then you could see 
the mood changing and they became more clear in what they wanted. And they told us they didn't want any civil service drafting. They wanted clear, direct messages. And I, I'm glad that you feel that has come across because it was a very strong feeling. Yeah, and I think they felt the weight of previous citizens' assemblies. But I, what you've just said there, I think, is really lovely. So that there was a coming together, having listened. Mm-hmm. And so often societies don't listen. They just become polarised, particularly in social media. And you see it in what's happened in world events, mm-hmm. you know, so that that coming together is wonderful. Do you think they felt that, you know, that the previous citizens' assemblies, you know, even the words, you know, they listened, they learned, they reflected, that's in the document. It's really, really impressive. Is it because they realised how previous citizens' assemblies have been so influential? Yes, I think so. If you think how much Ireland has changed in the last 20 years, and don't forget, part of our work was focused on our constitution, which was written in 1937, in a very different time and a very different Ireland. So, um, and everybody has a lived experience of gender equality or more likely inequality. So um, everybody brought that personal experience. And then I think a lot of people were quite taken aback to see where Ireland lags behind or is an outlier in some areas. And um, when they got the evidence, they said, well, why is it like this here? And they were very keen to have examples from other countries, which we were able to give them. And then they said, well, why can't we be like that? It's what is holding us back? We have to tell our political representatives that we want something different for the future. Any particular outliers that you remember? Well, childcare is an obvious one. In fact, I think what struck them most of all was the extent to which the Irish state has contracted out the care to the private sector. And Ireland on childcare is uh, is in terms of EU and even OECD countries way out there in terms of the percentage of childcare that is contracted to the private sector. And what we have is something that costs a fortune to parents where those who work in the sector are not well paid, don't have career structures. Um, and so they've called very strongly for a move to, to change that whole system and to have a publicly funded, publicly regulated system of childcare, which they believe would be better and would bring us much more into line with continental European countries. Wow. Um, the whole issue of caring uh, is very central to all the observations I can see and to the recommendations of the Assembly. Did COVID-19, the, the happening of COVID-19, did that bring the issue of caring and carers into very sharp focus? Yes, it did. No doubt about it. Um, I think the issue of care in one way or another came up in every single session. And of course, it put a particular focus on healthcare workers. And I think, again, people were really shocked to realise um, how much is contracted out, how many people working in the care sector aren't even on the minimum wage, how many people don't have pensions, don't have sick leave, maternity leave, all the things that most people take for granted in their working lives. And so it brought all of that into sharp relief. And the other thing that struck um, the citizens very much was um, whole sectors which are highly feminised, like teaching and healthcare, uh, are less well remunerated than sectors where you have a better gender balance. And that is no accident, they felt. And even where you do have, you know, uh, industries where, uh, you know, areas of uh, work like teaching, like nursing, you often find that the leadership levels tend to be male. I remember, you know, hearing a woman from the European Women's Lobby saying that even in NGOs in Brussels, even though the whole first two or three layers might be run primarily by women, it's the men who lead from the top. So it's... it's That's true here too in terms of nursing and healthcare, um, where you have 
predominantly women, but the few men who are there tend to be in the management level. So something has to change, doesn't it? That's what the citizens are saying. (laughs) It's impressive that they stress the need for the pay and career structures, um, as you're saying there. We've undervalued the role, I think, of caring for too long. And I think most people will agree it obviously came up the Citizens Assembly. Did the Citizens Assembly have many submissions and discussions on the topic of caring? Did they devote many sessions to it? Um, Well, we we had so much to get through that we tried to... um, stick to one topic per weekend session or Saturday session. Um, But as I say, care came up in many different areas because let's say lack of affordable childcare is a deterrent for women working full time in the in the work in the outside the home in the workplace. Um, So, um, yes, I think the care came up in different guises, but we devoted um, uh, quite a bit of time to the issue of care. We had a public consultation before we started, so we got nearly 300 uh, responses to that. And then they were summarised and in each session, um, the uh, academic presented what was in the submissions to the citizens. And then we invited advocacy organisations to come. So we had one family, we had the Child Care Association of Ireland, we had a submission from Traveller Women, from Women in Direct Provision, Um, we had the Men's um, Development Network, and then we had um, individual personal stories, which, as I say, brought the data to life, you know. Um, So, yes, we had a lot of input, but we were very careful to distinguish between these are the facts, this is an advocacy position. This is an organization that wants you to listen to what they want. And then these are individuals telling you what it's like to be in that position. And I think if you like the magic of the assembly is that the people got the information, the advocacy, and they also had the space and the time to debate with each other and to compare and contrast views so that several who either had very strong views or or didn't have strong views evolved over time. And I think that's why this formula is so much better as a barometer of public mood, because it's informed opinions that people are giving you. And not only that, but they've also tried to come to a consensus on what are the most important things. We worked through a process of, first of all, we had over 500 recommendations gathered from the citizens. And then we went through a process with them of whittling them down. Uh, to what were the most important, what were the, where were the ones that gained them, gathered the majority view, and we ended up with 45. So it was really a process of them working through, being willing to give up some ideas that maybe some of them cherished, but they hadn't convinced the other citizens to go along with. And so it's a really distilled essence of informed view that has come out of the process. I love the use of the word magic there. It sounds like it was a magical space. Uh, There's a wonderful sense of urgency. That's what I really liked about reading the the report. Uh, The plea for ambitious, not incremental change, because so often we hear about incremental. It'll come, you know, be step by step. But they say like, no, it's ambitious. Um, Why was that urgency felt so keenly by the members of the Assembly? I think because people are fed up of being palmed off with, oh, it, it's too, that's too difficult. We can't do it all at once. I mean, this is the second Citizens Assembly to recommend changing Article 41 of the Constitution, which we all talk about as the woman in the home clause, and it still hasn't happened. 
Um, and we we were talking about gender quotas. We were talking about the number of women in public life. And some of the experts said, well, it'll take more than 100 years to reach equality at the current rate of progress. And people just said, we're not prepared to wait that long. You know, it's this has to change and it has to change now. And Ireland has changed enormously in the last 20, 25 years. And this this is not finished. This is a process that has to continue. So I think that sense of urgency, there was a sense of injustice as to why should why shouldn't we have equality and why shouldn't we be able to live our lives as as individuals without being categorized into different subgroups so yes that was very strongly felt and as i say especially when people were given the data that they might not have had access to in their busy daily lives uh, then it was kind of very hard to ex- escape the conclusion that something must happen and soon so it's great that they delved behind the headlines to... to the, oh, yes. Uh, that's very important, I think. It, it validates the work that they did. In your own commentary at the start of the report, you stress that the Erchthus and government should keep in mind the broader messages of the Assembly, treating gender equality as a matter of human rights, uh, justice and fairness, which must underpin all our actions as a society. Is gender equality that important for a fairer society? Um, I think the citizens believe that it is. It's about representation. Um, and we actually have more women than men living in Ireland at the moment. And and that's a, a, you know, a long-term statistic. So um, in certain cases, we're excluding nearly ha- the, the, the majority of the population, not the minority. Um, and even when you look at the figures, I mean, we still only have 22.5% female representation in the Dáil. Uh, we looked at sporting organisations, for example. On the board of the GAA, it's 11% female Uh, the IRFU 8%. So, you know, getting that kind of data made people say, well, then we have to accelerate change quickly. We can't wait for it to evolve naturally. And it is about representation. I think um, the citizens felt quite strongly that if you had a better gender balance, which, given where we're starting from, more normally needs more women, but in certain areas needs more men. And they were very clear that, you know, this pitch is for everybody. It's n- this is not just about women's issues. Um, but you would make different kind of policies. You would take different things into account if you had more women there saying, well, that doesn't respond, c- correspond to our daily life or here's how we think it could be done differently, better. Um, And I mean, I worked for years in Brussels where there's an obsession in the institutions with geographical balance in the institutions. But uh, gender balance is even more important, I would say, because it's more universal. So um, we can't compartmentalise. We can't say we must have more Irish people working in Brussels, but then it doesn't matter that we only have very few women on boards or on governing bodies um, in our own country. There's a big responsibility on the political parties to ensure they actually put female candidates up in the first place and not in seats where they're not going to win anyway, which as I think is some of the ways they've they've kind of got around the quotas before. And, you know, were there any recommendations from the Assembly on how political parties can start doing something practical about putting more women candidates, about supporting them, about getting them elected? Yes. Um, for example, we do have quotas for um, the parties in national elections at the moment. Uh, but the citizens wanted to increase the quotas um, at the next election. And they also want to have quotas for um, local elections because most politicians, male and female, come up through uh, county councils and local politics. So to start much earlier building the pool and um, also to um, have more education, more information, to tap 
tackle the abuse on social media that in particular female candidates are subjected to. So, yeah, they, they do have a comprehensive um, view of how things work and um, uh, the extent of commitment that's needed to change. They did also want to um, in you know look at uh, what happens when a party doesn't meet its quota. So, in other words, what they really want is to see commitment to real change and commitment to uh, not just pretense um, setting up candidates who are not going to have a decent chance. In the end, of course, it has to be the electorate who decides who they want to have them govern. But they can't vote for a woman if there's no woman on the on list. Ticket, yeah, yeah. Um, it's going to be a hard nut to, to crack, though, isn't it? You know, people with privilege are very slow um, to yield the reins of power. Um, how can processes be mainstreamed to see that there are more women rising the rank, through the ranks of leadership, not just in politics, but in all walks of life, in sport, um, you know, in politics, in leadership, in business? How can we actually do that? I think we have to do a number of different things. I mean, the long term change has to come from education, the way we bring children up. We had some interesting expertise on stereotyping and how early in age it starts at. You know, after five, it's already they're boys, we're girls. Um, we do things differently. So it starts very early. The pink but aisles in the, in the toy yeah, shop. And yeah. we had big discussions about that. Did you? How hard it is to buy a things for kids that aren't either blue or pink and etc. Um, but also we can accelerate change and we had a lot of discussions about gender quotas and I think quite a few of the members were reticent on that at the start but they in the end the votes in favour of having quotas were very very high and I think again that came from um, learning what the figures are, how slow change will be if you leave it to best endeavours rather than imposing it. And we had, um, there's an organisation in Australia called Male Champions for Change. And they were very impressed by some videos and um, documentation we had from them about how people heading up big Australian companies were absolutely supporting um, bringing more women in at all levels and doing it now. And also um, there is legislation at European level which has been blocked for 10 years, but which and Germany was one of those blocking it. But they have the new German government has said we now support this. So I think that's going to come fairly quickly now. Um, and that will deal with um, having quotas on boards. And again, I mean, um, some of the figures that, that we heard about during the assembly, um, there's only 27% women on Irish boards, but 38% of Irish listed companies have no women in their leadership team. So again, if you're out there producing goods and services for the population, uh, why would you deprive yourself of the input of um, the majority of the population? It doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't, no. Well, but even from a business point of view, it doesn't no, make exactly. sense. <laughs> but it's also just, that's how it's always been. And I mean, I, have, um, I haven't always been a supporter of quotas, but I have come to the view that it's the only way to get the kind of change we need in any reasonable time period. Um, but I have been in the position of trying to um, push for women on interview lists or women to go on boards or whatever. And you get the old trope. Oh, no, we don't want we don't want a woman. You know, it would be very bad for her if she's there only just because she's a woman or we won't be able to find women on this. It's absolute nonsense. And I have to say, usually when they have gone ahead and done it because they were pushed to do it, some of them have had the grace to come back and say, actually, you know, you were so right. It's transformed the way that we discuss and meet. And I saw that in the European Commission um, because it was there a long time um, when you only had two females 
female commissioners, it wasn't enough to make the difference. But when we got up to one third of the number of commissioners being women, then the way they discussed issues, what they discussed, the kind of outcome, the quality of discussion was all very different. And that's what we need to be the kind of society that most of us want to live in, I think. I think somebody referred to it once, uh, who's a professor in the UK, said to me on another project, she said, one is the token woman, two are the girls, and three, you get, dis- you know, you get critical mass, you get even, you know, disagreement between the women, but it actually yeah. changes yeah. the whole culture of the, of the discussion yeah. that goes on. And that's very true because almost all the female commissioners are members of political parties before they came to the commission. And they never, I only saw one occasion where they acted as a block of women. On everything else, they were more or in line with their their either their national or their political or whatever views. Um, but they just changed the quality of the debate and they brought different things. And as a result, the kind of discussion a men only group would have had was very different. And I think better. The gender quotas for boards and governing bodies of publicly funded bodies is a very practical way to ensure, I suppose, that more gender equality, diversity and gender diversity happens in leadership. Was that a hot topic of discussion? And, you know, what were the recommendations around that? Yes, it was, because it was um, an area where I think quite a lot of people would have had preconceived ideas. Um, But again, it was a question of giving them the information, showing them um, uh, that life is not quite as rosy as some of them might have thought. And so um, they made um, recommendations that any body receiving public funding should have to have 40% gender balance by 2025. And it's the words gender balance are used because if you have all female um, boards, then you should have some male representation, but mostly it will be to increase the number of women. And they also want to have private um, companies um, obliged by legislation to have 40% balance. And as I said, that's probably going to come as a European um, piece of legislation anyway. Then also on sports, arts, media, cultural organisations, the same thing. And they also want to have um, reporting on how um, boards are moving towards achieving the quotas. And um, obviously, if there are any difficulties or whatever. But I think if if they have to report and if that information is made publicly available and they're held to account, then I think they will do it. They say you, you can't approve what you don't measure. Mm. Yeah, how do we get to that accountability? How do we kind of make sure that that's enshrined and that just happens? I mean, because nobody wants to see this fantastic mm. report from the Citizens Assembly being put on a shelf, just gathering dust. You know, how do you bring that that accountability into this, this, what, this um, incredible work? Well, I think one of the first things is um, we have to have the data. And for example, and sadly, um, for gender-based violence, um, Uh, we don't have up-to-date data. Uh, So people were shocked to find that. Um, And so at the... um In the report and some of the recommendations that the citizens um, uh, adopted were to to have a statutory body for gender equality, which would be under the responsibility of a cabinet minister. And that minister would have a cross government responsibility for gathering data, for coordinating policy and making sure that the data was published. And if it showed a less than favourable situation, that remedial action would be taken. Um, And that goes into things that people probably find very boring, but are very important issues like uh, gender impact assessment. If you're going to, let's say, adopt a new transport policy, does that take into account the needs of of women with buggies, men with buggies, the disabled? At the moment, it doesn't really. Um, What about... um, 
um, uh, gender, bu- uh, sorry, yes, gender impact assessment and then gender budgeting. Um, if there are particular impacts on on subgroups of society, how is that being taken into account? Is How is the budget being distributed? And again, it goes back to the issue of representation. I think if you have a better balance around the decision making table, a lot of these issues will be taken into account then because people will raise the issues. But if it's only all men or all women, then the interests of others will be less heard and that that doesn't make for good public policy long term. Not at all. Um, There were some wonderful, innovative ideas that came out of the Citizens' Assembly report. Any ones that particularly stand out to yourself? I don't want to pick out one in particular, but what I think came out was a great sense of humanity and wanting to live in a decent society. And I think, yes, that was heightened by COVID, but it was deep seated in people because almost everybody has an experience of caring, um, whether it's for children, whether it's for older relatives, whether it's for those who are disabled in our society or being cared for ourselves at certain times. Um, And so I think people were quite shocked at the pay and conditions and the lack of a proper structure for the people who care for us, as well as lack of personal input and dignity and choice for the people who are cared for. So I would say what what warmed my heart was the degree of humanity and commitment that came out and the degree of commitment to make to get these things changed. A lot of people said um, that, you know, the next time the parties came calling at election time, they would brandish the recommendations at them and say, what have you done? There'd be a lot of bookers waved. Yes. (laughs) But I mean, the the way that they thought down to micro details, you know, like that education grants would be given to part time students. Yes. That would suit women with small children who want to study, but they have a major job of childcare. Yeah, that was one of the points that came in in the consultation. And um, we did have summary sheets for them of all the recommendations that were made so that when they were then deciding on their recommendations, they could pick from the wider troll of opinion, if you like, as well as from their own personal views. So it was a very good mix. Um, You mentioned gender based violence there a minute ago. Mm. Uh, Gender based violence and domestic abuse have been all too evident during the pandemic and in the attacks on women in more recent times. We see it on the news and in special investigations and the new Garda task force. But the problem never seems to go away. And if anything, it gets worse. Um, I mean, I've just been researching another project, looking back at um, the writings of a woman called Dorothea Herbert in the 17th century. And she talks about the local lord's um, wife not being able to go to a party because she'd got a hiding. And it was just like from Mm. his lordship. So it's through all ranks of society for centuries, for generations. It seems intractable. And can we ever get away from it? And, you know, what what does this does the Citizens Assembly see that there are actions, positive actions that can be taken to assist people in domestic violence situations? Well, before I come to the specifics, I mm. think um, that is one of the messages and that's why the Assembly stresses so much equality because women have not been treated equally. And even in our constitution, women are not treated equally. Um, and so I think in the 21st century, people have had enough and both men and women in the Assembly wanted a strong uh, change in this direction. And that's it's only when everybody is valued equally will all of this change. And it's 
to do with the way that we treat women, but also homosexual people, people with disabilities, people of a different skin colour. It's just treating some people less as less human beings than others. So a very strong call for equality. Now, on domestic, sexual and gender based violence, um, that wasn't actually in the list of things the Oireachtas asked us to look at, but we felt very quickly that we had to because it's an important part of gender equality. And here again, um, there are different recommendations. First of all, um, the citizens would like to see a cabinet minister responsible for implementing a national strategy to combat it. Um, Again, the issue of data is very important. They also want sufficient public beds, shelters and refuges for um, families trying to escape from domestic violence. And then there are several recommendations on supporting justice for victims and survivors because there's so much evidence of um, a second trauma of having to go through a court case if people are brave enough to, 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 to go to the, 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 the guards and the courts. Um, and so um, the recommendations cover things like um, uh, specialist training for judges and lawyers on how to deal with such cases, tougher sentences and rehabilitation programmes for perpetrators, special health care, um, uh, having a victim survivors commissioner to act as an independent advocate for the voice of victims and survivors. So quite a lot of things that if they were taken up, I think, would begin to make a difference. And most of all, they would show that Ireland as a society um, is totally against um, this kind of violence. And again, if I go back to the, the open letter, if I can find the right part. Um, yes, there's a sentence in the letter that says there is no place in our society for gender based violence. Just a short, simple sentence. No excuses. What's what's lovely about it is that they've given actual practical things. Yeah. Things that can be actually yeah. done. And that's what they wanted. They, they And that goes back to the kind of drafting language that they wanted. They didn't want convoluted paragraphs. They wanted there is no place. We will not accept. We want change now. And I think that's the best way to communicate um, strong messages to the political like level. A simple the detail sub- no can sub- follow. Clauses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, probably, probably the most important thing that you were asked to look at were changes to the constitution, amendments to the constitution, articles 40.1, 41, 41.2. These will have to be changed by referendum of the people. Have you had any indication from government if this is on the agenda? And will you be talking to them about this when you go to talk to them in the Oireachtas? Well, what happens now to the recommendations, because they are recommendations, the Citizens' Assembly was not elected by the people. They don't have the power to change, but they do have the power of persuasion. And I think their messages are very persuasive. So um, a new committee, a joint committee of the Dáil and the Shannad has been set up under the chairmanship of Ivana Batchik, and it is starting its work um, in the beginning of March. And their job will be to go through the recommendations and recommend as the Oireachtas to government what to do about them. And as I said a moment ago, um, at least one of the changes that the Gender Equality Assembly recommended has already come from a previous um, Citizens' Assembly. So I really hope that this time um, it will be acted upon. Um, it, It was agreed previously that the clause on the woman in the home should be changed. But then it ran into the sands of discussion um, in government about um, uh, putting in a reference to care. 
and what our assembly, our assembly was briefed on all of this, understood it. And what they want to put in is to take out the woman in the home clause and replace it by an obligation on the state to take reasonable measures to support care within the home and wider community. Um, and the the wording reasonable measures was long debated um, because um, a constitution gives rights. And so if people want to are, are being denied their rights and they want to take action about them, ultimately a judge would have to decide. And the phrase reasonable measures is there designed to say the state has an obligation to provide care, but it's not unlimited. And in the individual cases, the judge should decide had the state state done reasonable taken reasonable measures or not so it would make actionable a right to care without making it absolute and I think that's a very balanced view of the citizens sounds like the whole citizens assembly was very balanced in in everything that they did um well not at the beginning and they had lively discussions but that's uh, as I, the process I described of you know narrowing it down until they came to the essentials that in that sense yes because they they did try to accommodate each other's views and some would have liked to go further, less far, but in the end they found this common ground and I think that's what gives the, the strength to the recommendations. Um, they must have been very lucky to have you because you must have got those skills from years working at your job in, in Brussels. You you saw how things worked and you know how they worked for the better. Um, you've had a stellar career in the EU. You're no stranger to leadership yourself. Would you like to share some of your leadership pearls of wisdom to us? <laughs> we always ask guests to tell us, you know, because we get wonderful little nuggets of uh, wisdom. Um, Actually, well, it's can I stop there just for a second? I forgot to ask you, have you enjoyed your time as, with the Citizens' Assembly? Was it, a, in, was it an enjoyable process? Did you get a lot out of it? I can truthfully say it was a great experience. I really enjoyed it. I, I had heard about Citizens' Assemblies. I didn't know that much about them, I, I, you know, what would be expected when I, but I wanted to say yes when I was asked. Um, but it was a voyage of discovery. And it really, um, one of our citizens said, it restores your faith in humanity. And I fully endorse that. Um, it gave me great faith in the, the common sense of so-called ordinary people. Um, and and also that when they were confronted with the evidence, that they, they unerringly found the right place to land. And as somebody who's worked on public policy all my life, that was very, very consoling because in this age of, you know, hate speech and social media polarisation to find that people who took the time to invest on behalf of others um, could come with, you know, clear sighted, sensible proposals. And um, they were not lawyers, they were not economists, but they had the common sense to say this should change and here's how it should change. So it was a very uplifting experience. I'm so glad I had the opportunity to do it. Sure, they're glad they had you too. So now finally, tell me, what are your five pearls of wisdom that you've garnered from your life experience and your work experience? Well, from my work experience, I would say always be well prepared. Um, it's never a waste of time, even if you don't get asked a fraction or you don't need to draw on whatever you've prepared. And um, I um, was present in the European Council for 10 years watching the prime ministers deal with very difficult issues. And the person who was always best prepared was Angela Merkel. Um, and she used it to great effect. So um, if you want a, a reference for being well prepared, I think she is one. 
I think um, it's important to be true to yourself. Um, if something doesn't ring true, if you feel uncomfortable about it, don't do it. It's you have to live with yourself. Um, and I also think um, it's important to be good to your friends um, when when you're busy. Uh, and I had a very demanding job. I had wonderful friends I could rely on, even if I had to turn down 10 invitations, they would still not drop me. And now that I'm retired, I'm hoping to invest a lot more in my friends. Um, but I think it's important that you make time for them, that you see them and talk to them or at least explain why you can't go to whatever event is on. And I've always said to everybody that it's very important to take breaks, take holidays. Um, I think if you work all the time, you lose your sense of proportion and that's not good for you and it's not good for whatever work you're doing. And I think in the discussion in the assembly, one of the issues that came up was how can you make sure that those who are in caring roles get proper respite um, and they need it no matter how devoted they are. You need that time away just to rethink, let things fall into perspective. And then my last thing which isn't always easy to apply is forgive yourself. You know, we all make mistakes, but I think women often beat themselves up about them. And I think if you've made a mistake and you can correct it, do. But if you can't um, get over it, move on and just learn from the next time. Some I heard somebody say one time instead of saying if only so we all dwell in the if only I hadn't done that, if only I hadn't said that, if only I'd been there, say next time. I'll do it differently or I'll be there. And that's a good way of learning to forgive yourself, I think. That's terrific. Next time instead of if only. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The amount of time we waste on, well, I've wasted yeah. on, on And you can't go back and change things that happened in the past, but you can do something about the future and, and you can, can learn, learn from, from it. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, tell me, what is your go to song or piece of music? Do you like music? Oh, I love music, but I mainly like classical music um, and not so much opera. So it's not about songs. But I was thinking um, one um, old piece of music that really gives me a lift every time I hear it is Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles. So I just love hearing that intro and then the, the words. So I think that would be my go to song to cheer me up Fantastic. on a grey day like today. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Catherine Day, thank you so much for joining us on the Women in Leadership podcast. You've been a joy to talk to. Thank you very much. My thanks to Dr. Catherine Day, Chairperson of the Citizens' Assembly on Gender Equality, my guest on this episode of the Women in Leadership podcast for International Women's Day. Do follow us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn and wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us also on Twitter and LinkedIn. Remember, there's a huge back catalogue of interviews with guests, which you can browse through on the website. Until the next time, from me, Angie Mazzetti, and all on the Women in Leadership podcast, goodbye, take care, and enjoy International Women's Day, if you can. <laughs>